Good morning again. Um, as Keith mentioned earlier, our pastor is currently in Haiti. And uh, when he first asked me to break the word in his place, it, it always is a privilege and it's always intimidating. But when I found out that I was covering for him on the first weekend of September, my immediate reaction was, oh no, because it's the first weekend of college football. <laughs> and my alma mater, Virginia Tech, plays the number one team in the nation, a team whom I shall not name. I was relieved when I found out that they don't play until tomorrow, so I'm good to go today. But some of you might want to check with, on me tomorrow night to see if I need some prayers. I recently did an internet search on polls that ask people what their favorite Christian song is. And one song that showed up over and over in the polls is the song Amazing Grace. And I guess that's not surprising. Uh, and my guess is if I did a similar survey with this group right here, I'd get very similar results. And we enjoy singing songs like uh, Your Grace is Enough for Me, Grace, Grace, God's Grace, etc., all these songs that celebrate, you, know, you guessed it, God's grace. And in case you haven't noticed, and a while ago it was the case, a lot of the songs that we sing, um, the as the words are shown up, uh, shown on the screen, alongside the copyright information at the end, you'll see the words sovereign grace music. So grace is a word that we all love because of the special meaning that it has for Christians. Now I did another internet search. And this time, I looked for songs that celebrated God's law. And as you might have guessed, I didn't find many, just two. And I didn't recognize either of them. One was entitled, Most Perfect is the Law of God. It was written sometime before 1907. And the other one was entitled, The Law of God is Good and Wise. It was written in 1863. I did not find one written within the last century that was even remotely popular. Now, I don't think I'm very far from the truth in speculating that the difference in the number of songs about God's grace versus the number written about God's law reflects the relative importance that is generally given by Christians to these two ideas, God's grace and God's law. Now, I will confess to being guilty of loving God's grace in my life and not having the same affections for God's law. And as, as I reflect on why that might be the case, I look back to the time when I first heard the gospel and I encountered passages like John 1.17 that say this, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Or Romans 6.14 that say this, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law but under grace. And I, I encountered so many verses that increased my love for Christ. But at the same time, I was starting to view the law as a cruel taskmaster that was out to get me, unless I run to Christ for protection. Did you feel that way about the law at one time? And more importantly, do you still feel that way about the law? Now, I ask this because I'm convinced and I'm convicted by God's word that it shouldn't be that way, that we should love God's law and it, it should have an important place in the life of a New Testament Christian. Now, let me just be clear that when I talk about God's Word, God's Word is the totality of the law, the prophets, the wisdom books, and, and so on. God's law is a part of God's Word. 
And when I refer to the law, I'm referring to the Mosaic law that was handed down to the nation of Israel through Moses. Now, this morning, let's consider a psalm that was written by David, Psalm 119, which in its entirety is really a psalm celebrating God's law. At 176 verses, it is the longest chapter in the Bible. Don't worry, I will not read all of it this morning. Although I would encourage you to read the entire psalm and observe that its central theme is the law of God. Today, we will read just verses 97 to 104. So if if you're not there yet, please turn to Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104, and uh, follow uh, with me as I read it. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Now, the first word in the passage is the word, oh. Now, I know a grammar lesson is not the most fun thing to have on a Sunday morning. But let me just say that this word is an interjection. An interjection is a word to express a particular emotion on the part of the speaker. But what is the emotion in this case? I can read the passage in different ways, and the manner I do it communicates the emotion I'm feeling. I could say, oh, how I love your law. Or I could say, oh, how I love your law. And we don't have the benefit of being able to hear the psalmist himself, but we can get a clue from a later verse. Look at verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, David compares the law of God to honey. Now, this gives us a clue as the emotion expressed in, oh. And you know, in this day and age, we have a lot of choices to satisfy our craving for something sweet, don't we? Apple pie, cheesecake, ice cream, a Snickers bar, maybe something more exotic like baklava. I think I better stop here. My point being, honey doesn't usually come to mind as our favorite dessert. But keep in mind that for the ancient Jew, honey was the epitome of sweetness. And so I hope that the superlative expressed in this verse is not lost to us. Now in verses 97 and 99, David speaks of meditating on the law of God. And by biblical meditation, we speak of an intense focusing of our mind, our thoughts on a particular subject. And in this case, it's the law of God. And then he gives the result of that meditation, that intense consideration of God's law. He says, it gives him godly wisdom. Verse 98, it makes me wiser than my enemies. Verse 99, I have more understanding than my teachers. Verse 100, I understand more than the aged. Verse 104, through your precepts I get understanding. So he gets this wisdom, this understanding 
And the result of ga getting, gaining this wisdom is this. He's able to identify and avoid evil and develop a distaste for it. Verse 101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. Verse 102, I do not turn aside from your rules for you have taught me. Verse 104, therefore I hate every evil way. He's developing this distaste for evil. Now, in another psalm, in fact the first psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 1, David also speaks of the person who meditates on God's law. And he describes that person as blessed. We are told in Psalm 1 that this person is like a tree planted by streams of living water that yields its fruit in its seasons. Like a tree that's fruitful, a tree that does not wither, one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, one who does not stand in the way of sinners. So, we certainly understand how David, in his meditation of God's law, how he can compare it to honey, the sweetest thing he ever tasted in his life. Now, the question for all of us, myself included, is this. Do we see the law of God differently? Do we see it as bitter or distasteful instead of sweet? If we do, then something's wrong. And that begs the question, how can we increase our appreciation, our love for the law of God? How can we do that? Now, at this point, I'd like to mention the name John Calvin, a name that should be familiar to, uh, to you if you've been around this church for a while. Now, in his writings, he mentions three uses of the law to the New Testament Christian. Now, I want to make it clear at this point that I am not trying to pretend to be smarter than Calvin, because what I'd like to do is modify his words somewhat. Instead of enumerating the three uses of the law, I'd like to mention three reasons why we can and should love the law as New Testament believers. Three reasons why we can and should love the law as New Testament believers. Now, the first reason we can and should love the law is that it shows our need for the gospel as it reveals God's character. It shows our need for the gospel as it reveals God's character. Now, the source of the law is God himself. It is a revelation of who he is, his very character. So when we are called to obey the law of God, we are called to obey him. He is the supreme authority, and he alone can bind our consciences. Now, according to Scripture, what is the fundamental problem in us and in all of creation? It's sin. I heard somebody say sin. Correct. Sin is defined in terms of the existence of the law. Sin is a lack of conformity to the law or a transgression of the law of God. Now, the word sin comes from a Greek word that literally means to miss the mark. And you're all familiar with Romans 3.23. It's described as a falling short, a failing to rise up to the standard that is commanded. It's not an option. It's commanded. Now, think about this. What if there was no law? Well, simply put, there would be no sin if there is no law. And we can't be guilty because there is no law to transgress. So does that mean that there was no sin before the law was given to Moses? Not at all. Adam would not have sinned if God did not forbid him 
from eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a command which we all know he disobeyed. But if, what, what if one doesn't hear the law? What about that case? Well, that's no excuse either. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that everyone has some knowledge of the law of God. God ins inscribed it in the hearts of men so that everyone has an awareness of what is right and what is wrong and no one can claim ignorance as an excuse. So, the law reveals our fallen nature. I can deceive myself into thinking I'm righteous. We all can. We all love those professors and teachers who grade on a curve, don't we? I can compare myself with others using human standards and give myself a high score. But once I examine the law of God, I'm devastated because I see the darkness of my sin against the standard of perfect righteousness. And like Isaiah, we, we can cry, woe is me, before the perfection of the law. But we need the law because without it, we'll never understand why the gospel is good news. So let me repeat, the first reason we can and should love the law is that it shows our need for the gospel as it reveals God's character. The second reason why we can and should love the law is because it is the basis by which ruling authorities restrain evil in this world. Let me repeat that. It is the basis by which ruling authorities restrain evil in this world. The laws that we're required to, to observe, traffic laws, tax laws, laws protecting human life and property, etc. All these laws, where do they come from? They come from the government. Now, where do governments come from? And where do they get the authority to do what they do? Well, in Romans 13, it says that governments were instituted by God and received their authority from God. They are, they are given the power of the sword to, get, to carry out God's wrath on evildoers. Now, keep in mind, though, that theirs is a, it's not an ultimate authority. It's a delegated authority. Governments have a delegated authority. Now, nowadays, you often hear people say this about laws. You can't legislate morality. You've heard that, probably. I hope you, well, I hope you didn't say it, but I'm sure you've heard it. Now, I realize that when people say this, what they probably mean is just because you pass a law that prohibits certain forms of behavior, it does not guarantee that that behavior will be eliminated. I agree with that. But then we have to ask, do laws restrain evil? Yes, they do. And I hope you see that without laws, restrict, restricting certain bad behavior patterns, those behaviors will be worse. Unrestrained evil will make society impossible. We have to have some order so that we can have an envir environment for life itself. And it's, it's the fear of punishment that keeps people in line. Now let me ask those of you who drive. When you see a sign on the highway that says, speed limit, 65 miles per hour, does it prevent you from driving 70 miles per hour? It doesn't. And if you've done that, let me assure you that I have not taken the moral high ground on this law. I'm as guilty as most people in treating speed limits in a casual manner. Now, I've noticed as you probably have, that the police will let me get away with driving a little bit 
above the speed limit. Perhaps because they're having a good day. And that's great because if they're having a good day, I'm having a good day. <laughs> but just because the police lets me get away with it means I haven't broken the law. Yes, I confess to driving at 70 miles per hour in a 65 mile per hour zone, but one thing you will never see in my on my speedometer is 90 miles per hour. Why? Fear of higher insurance rates and having to pay a fine restrains me. Also, Carmen sitting beside me, pointing out that I'm driving too fast, further restrains me. So even though the law does not transform me into a perfectly obedient citizen, it causes me to exercise some restraint. Just imagine what it would be like if there was no speed limit and we can all drive as fast as we want. A few years back, my family and I, were, we were on a crowded Los Angeles freeway. I know, that's a mistake right there. That had a speed limit of 70 miles per hour. I was driving at 75 and everyone else was whizzing by at 90, even 95, and no one was being ticketed. If the speed limit were 80, I don't think I even want to get on that road. But that's just me. Some of you might say, yeah, bring it on. But so, so we should be thankful that governments issue laws that restrain human behavior. Now, we know that governments can become corrupt and laws can be unjust. But we should realize also that any form of government, no matter how bad it is, is better than no government at all. No government means anarchy, the total absence of order, just like the Wild West before the U.S. Marshals came. The truth is, the establishment of government is part of God's grace to all humanity, believers and unbelievers alike, just like the rain and the sunshine. It makes possible to some degree for, some, for sinful people to live together without completely destroying each other. And if all, and all just laws, all just laws have their basis in the law of God. Even pagan authority structures have some concepts of right and wrong that finds their basis in God's law. As I already mentioned, everyone has some awareness of God's law because that law is written in their hearts by God himself. So, the first reason we should, we can and should love the law is because it shows our need for the gospel as it reveals God's character. And the second reason is because it is the basis by which ruling authorities restrain evil in this world. Now, the third reason we can and should love the law is that it shows us what is pleasing to God. It shows us what is pleasing to God. And one, one question Christians often ask is this. What is God's will for my life? What does he want me to do? Well, if there's one thing that's clear in the New Testament, it's this. The goal of the Christian life is righteousness. Just aside a couple of passages. Matthew 6, 30, 33, Jesus said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In Matthew 5.20, he says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's an emphasis on righteousness. But how do we know what righteousness, righteousness looks like 
if we cl uh, ignore the clearest revelation of righteousness, which is found in the law. King David, who wrote the psalm that we read earlier, he was called a man after God's own heart because he wanted to please God. And he could say, oh, how I love the law, because through it, through the law, he learned how God may be pleased. Now, if a person who cl uh, claims to be a Christian says, I don't care about the Old Testament law. It's tantamount to saying, I don't care about pleasing God. And I have to be blunt here. I will go as far as questioning if that person is even a Christian. Is it even possible for a person to be saved and have no concern to do what is pleasing to God? And Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. For Jesus, obeying God was his life. It consumed him. How can someone who doesn't care about the law think that the Lord will take delight in him? When the New Testament calls us to mind, to, I'm sorry, calls us to have the mind of Christ like we sang a while ago, it means to consider what God wants so that we may act like Christ and imitate him. God the Son pleased God the Father by his perfect obedience to the law. If we want to know what is pleasing to God, there's no better place to look than in his law, where he reveals what he wants his people to do. If we're quick to throw out the law of God, what does that say about our affection for Christ? David said, I love thy law, not because he was fascinated by some abstract, disembodied set of rules, but because he loves the God whose will and character is revealed in the law. And so if the law tells us what is pleasing to God, it is of tremendous importance and significance to us today. So just to recap, the reasons we can and should love the law, first, it shows our need for the gospel as it reveals God's character. Second, it is the basis by which ruling authorities restrain evil in this world. Third, because it shows us what is pleasing to God. Now we come to the part where we have to ask the question, what place does the Old Testament law have in our lives as New Testament believers? How do we observe it, given that we are on this side of the cross in history? It can get really confusing, and sometimes there are no easy answers. You probably heard of this story uh, of a man who was trimming the bushes in his yard one Sunday afternoon when his neighbor comes out and con confronts him and says to him, you can't do that. It's the Sabbath. You shouldn't be working on the Sabbath. You shouldn't be doing that. And the man, a little bit embarrassed, sheepishly answered, well, Jesus worked on the Sabbath, to which the neighbor replied, well, two wrongs don't make a right. <laughs> yes, we can really get confused about this. Now, before I cover how we might get some guidance from Scripture on how we should observe the law, let's consider some truths concerning Jesus and the law. Um, Larry mentioned it when he prayed. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law on our behalf. And for our part, it is through our faith in him that we are saved from the penalties of our disobedience to the law. But his perfect 
obedience did not render the law meaningless. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, um, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We are not to ignore the law and have a life, live a life of lawlessness. I'm emphasizing these truths because there is an idea floating within the church today called antinomianism, which literally means anti-law. Antinomianism is the theory that the law of God is no longer relevant to the New Testament Christian's life. Consider Romans 6.14, where Paul says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Did you get that? It has no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Antinomianism takes verses like these as saying we are no longer responsible to conform to the stipulations of the Old Testament law. But if there's one thing that is clearly condemned in the New Testament, it is for an individual to be lawless. Remember the sobering words that Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Let me read it to you. Matthew 7, 21-23 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is a dreadful indictment on antinomianism of any form. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 3, evil incarnate is referred to as the man of lawlessness. So then, if the law is not abolished, then we're still faced with the question, well, do, do we observe all of the law? Or are there parts of the law that still applies to us and some that don't? Now, we can get some guidance from Scripture in answering that question. Now, historically, one way that the church has approached this matter is to categorize the law into ceremonial, dietary, and moral laws. Now, let me just say, from the onset that this category, categorization approach has its merits, but it's still not an airtight system in answering questions related to observance and applicability. The ceremonial laws are those laws that include the rites in, and rituals in the worship experience of Israel that were commanded by God. Burnt offerings, the once-a-year entry of the high priest into the Holy of Holies, and, and many others. Now, the New Testament tells us that those were shadows or types of what was to come once and for all, which was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, orthodoxy in the church teaches us not to continue these Old Testament rites. In fact, the New Testament, in the New Testament, we have a group known as the Judaizers who tried to influence the New Testament church to continue these ceremonies in perpetuity. It was resisted by Paul in Galatians as well as by the author of Hebrews. 
with the argument that if we revert back to the shadows of what has already come, we would be in effect denying the finished work of Christ. So those are the ceremonial laws. And then there are the dietary laws. Laws that identified what foods were clean and unclean. Now the early church leaders had to deal with the applicability of these laws when Gentiles who followed different rules of diet were being saved and becoming part of the church. They had to deal with this issue. Do the dietary laws still apply? Well, it was Peter who settled, settled the matter during the church council in Acts 15 after he was told by Christ in a vision not to call clean what God has declared, or I'm sorry, not to call unclean what God has declared clean. And thereafter, the, the, the list of uh, restricted foods was greatly reduced. And I don't know about you, but that's just fine with me. I mean, I won't be ex as excited about the men's brobecue we're having in two weeks if we couldn't have any pork. I, I like Chick-fil-A, don't get me wrong, but I'd still like a bacon biscuit every now and then. And, and I'm not talking about turkey bacon either. <laughs> so we have the ceremonial laws, we have the dietary laws, and lastly, we have what are collectively called the moral laws. And contained in, these category, in this category are the laws that are considered universally applicable and therefore they apply to New Testament believers. Now, this is where we encounter some problems in this classification approach. The idea of classifying some laws as moral and therefore universally applicable while others as are not is open to debate and disagreement. Bear in mind that to the ancient Jew, all laws, they, they had no such classification. All laws were moral in nature because they all reflected what God declared to be right or wrong. And furthermore, it does not resolve other questions when we consider the specifics of how we should observe the law. For instance, observance of the Sabbath day is clearly a moral law, but does that mean we shouldn't, have, shouldn't be here today? We should have been here yesterday? Should be worshiping on Saturdays instead of Sundays? So, concerning the specifics of how we observe the law, we, we may not always have an easy or clear-cut resolution, but, but we do have some guidance from the Lord himself. Because in his life and through his teachings, the Lord Jesus provides us with a lens through which we should view the Old Testament law. If we consider the Old Testament law in isolation, it's not always easy to determine the original meaning, the significance, or the original purpose of the law. But Jesus, in his teachings, lays out for us principles rather than just plain procedures. Through Jesus' teachings, we can gain some, gain some theological insight or principles behind the law. And once we're able to do that, we can consider how we can apply those principles to situations that we're facing. Let me try to clarify what I just said. I know that was a, a, an earful right there. Let me give an example. Let's take, uh, for instance, the observance of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was established to give us rest from our labors, and that doesn't mean sleeping all day. Easy to do that Sunday afternoon with the NFL, you know, just sleep. But that's not what it means. 
but rather it's a day to take a break from our routine duties and be refreshed and renewed by gathering together in fellowship before God. But does that mean absolutely no work? Well, Jesus said it is never unlawful to do good works on the Sabbath. So if we work for the benefit of others, are we in violation of the original intent of the law on keeping the Sabbath holy? Not at all. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Jesus commended the actions of a person who pulls an animal out of a pit, even if it is on the Sabbath. But on the other hand, what if we work on the Sabbath for nothing more than personal profit, driven by our greed rather than a concern for others? That goes against the original intended purpose of the law. So by this one example, I hope you see what I mean when I say we take the Old Testament law, we examine it in light of Jesus' teachings, and then apply it to our New Testament situation. Now, I won't pretend that it's always easy to figure out how to apply the law to each and every situation we face. It's not always easy to take Old Testament principles and translate them to New Testament practices. Now, we need wisdom, but God promised wisdom in abundance to those who ask for it. James 1.5, we read, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And sometimes it further says, if we don't get it, it's because we ask with the wrong motives. We want to please God. We want to understand this for the intention of pleasing God. And, and, and as, I, um, as I conclude now, I'd like to bring us back full circle to the psalm we read in the beginning. David said, oh, how I, loved your law, uh, how I love your law. Now, he loved the law because he wanted to please God, and the law told him how to do that. Now, we can go about discussing and debating the fine points of the law to no end, but is absent in our discussions is the desire to please God that we discuss and debate in vain. The Apostle Paul echoed this. He wrote a letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. He wrote this to Timothy regarding the law. Now, the context here is Paul's giving Timothy direction on how to deal with teachers of false doctrine. So please listen carefully to what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. Quote, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Unquote. Paul emphasizes the goodness of following the law as it comes from a heart of purity, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In other words, it comes from a heart that desires to please God and to love others. And we need the Holy Spirit to empower us to keep the law and walk in light of it. We also need the Holy Spirit to convict us whenever we break the law. And this conviction is for the purpose of bringing us back to the foot of the cross, laying our sins there, confessing, and then repenting. 
The Christian life is a life characterized by continuous confession and repentance before God. And if we think we will ever reach a point where there is no more forgiveness available for our sin, be assured and comforted by the promise in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, if we break the law, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me close by just saying that it's my hope that when we all live here today, we will have a greater appreciation for the gift that is God's law and with a greater affection for God so that we can say the words in Psalm 19 this way. Oh, Lord God, how I love your law. It is a light unto my feet. It's a light unto my path. Pray with me as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper.